Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Anybody else like listen to that song and just think how fitting that was for the book of Job? Because I sit there thinking like, you know, here I find myself at a loss for words and the funny thing is that's okay. Uh, if you've not been with us, or you're visiting here with us this morning, I want to say welcome to you. We've been in a uh, about 20-week study in the book of Job. Uh, and the reason that that is so fitting is because the last couple of weeks, um, God, after 38 chapters or so of silence in Job's life, all of a sudden bursts on the scene and starts talking to Job. And Job, through the whole book, has been, if God would just be, if I could just get an audience with God, if I could just tell him and that he would see what's going on in my life, that he would vindicate me, he would justify me, and I would be okay. And God bursts on the scene and uh, gives Job, he doesn't answer any of Job's questions really, he just tells Job about how great he is and Job's only response to that is he says, you know what Lord, I take back everything I said, uh, forgive me for what, I have, for what I have done. And so he's really lo- left at kind of a loss for words um, and so it was kind of fitting, I was listening to that song and I just thought, you know, how, how neat that was. Uh, if you have your Bibles, flip open with me to the book of Job chapter 42. Uh, Job's a rather large book in the Old Testament. Uh, Job is a story about a man who uh, was a godly man. He was a wealthy man. God had blessed him incredibly. And uh, in, a, in a divine wager, I guess you could call it, um, God allows Satan to take everything from Job except his life. So he loses uh, his children. He loses his health. He loses his um, wealth. He loses everything that he has. And in the book of Job, uh, for the most part, we we find that he has three friends, and they're telling him that all this has happened because Job has sinned, and Job, and through the whole book, is maintaining his integrity. And today, and I'll I'll be honest with you, as I read this, and even as I've preached through it, there's been a little bit of... um, a little, just something disturbing about it all. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it until the last few weeks as I was preparing for this week, the last few weeks, and finally it dawned on me why there was an, an, an unease in my heart about the book of Job. And, and it's this, it's one word, it's justice. Now you think of our, our, our Pledge of Allegiance and how it ends with liberty and justice for all. You know, there's something about justice that, is, that, that we long for, that we desire. Matter of fact, in today's society, in our culture today, you see all kinds of people desiring and seeking justice. And justice is something that we all, we all want. It, it, it's something that uh, it, it is deeply, it's deeply satisfying when we receive justice, But on the other side of it, when we don't receive justice, there is something incredibly unsatisfying about that because we have a longing for justice. It is something that I believe when we were created in the image of God, God created us with a desire to see see just things happen, for justice to, 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 to occur. And in this book, it was, and as we read through the book of Job, what was so unsettling to me was that there, this sense, this justice that I longed to see in Job's life took so long to develop. 
And so there never was this kind of nice ending where Job is justified, where God bursts on the scene and, and, and really levels uh, Job's foes, his quote-unquote friends that are leveling these harsh accusations against him. We don't see that, so it's chapter after chapter of really Job being left to more or less fend for himself. And now we, we get to that, that part of the book where, where God is going to kind of burst on the scene. But I want to make note of this as well. As great as our sense and need for justice is, you and I do not do a very good job executing it, do we? Now I want you to think about this for just a second because we see ourselves a lot in Job's friends. Job's friends are waiting on God to execute justice on Job. They are so convinced that Job has done something terrible and that this whole book of Job and all Job's suffering was, was kind of uh, God executing justice against Job for this sin, that if Job would just repent of it, everything would be fine. You think in our own lives, you know, our sense of justice and what we think is just, we can, we can pervert that. And we can pervert what we think justice is being. See, when I do something wrong and justice is executed against me in the negative, like I want people to go easy on me, right? But if we're the ones that have been wronged and we're waiting on justice to be executed for somebody else, how does that change our sense of justice? And so you can see how we can kind of, we kind of pervert justice but here's the great news in all this. We may pervert it or we may try to tweak it or change it or, 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 or get around it. But here's the thing about God. God is perfect when he executes justice. In fact, the one of his characteristics is that he is just, that he is fair, that he is good and he is perfect and he is right in all that he does. And we're going to see that begin to take shape here uh, in, in, in God executing his justice here. And so uh, he's completely righteous. And, and when his justice finally, and, and this relief just kind of washes over us in our study, when his justice finally arrives, what we discover is that it is worth the wait. The, the, the wait can seem long. And maybe you're here this morning and you're waiting on that sense of justice and you're like, man, it just seems like the wait is long. It's worth the wait. And though it may be, seem long, uh, you know, God's accounts are not settled at the end of every month. So we may want it to happen a little bit sooner. But justice is an essential ingredient in the character of God. He cannot ignore it. And I think one of the reasons, again, as I mentioned earlier, that we are kind of disturbed by Job is that it takes so long for uh, God to, to come to Job's rescue. But, it, but it's also what makes the, this final chapter of the book of Job so satisfying. As if this good man who never deserved any of the suffering that he's enduring is dealt with justly. And those around him, around him who made his life so miserable, they're not overlooked either. The God of justice, he finally steps in, bringing great rewards, and he brings great restoration to the righteous and strong discipline to the unrighteous. So let's bow in a word of prayer, and let's dive uh, right into the book of Job chapter 42 this morning. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, and, and Father, we confess, Father, that we get a lot of things wrong, but God, we also want to proclaim this morning that you get everything right. 
And God, though there may have been some, some sense of, of, of unease in, in, in us, Lord, as we have read through the book of Job, and I confess there, there is in me as we read it and we wait on you to move, Lord, when you finally do move, it is a beautiful, wonderful thing to behold. And I pray that for those that maybe are here this morning and, and they're waiting on you and they've been waiting patiently, God, and it just seems like the wait continues to get to stretch on, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand and to, to help us to have increased patience, Lord, because you are always worth the wait. When we wait on you to move, it is always worth the wait. And so, Father, we pray this morning, Lord, that as we study your word, as we break down what Job chapter 42 has to say in, in terms of, of justice, God, I pray that, that, God, even our sense of justice within us would be corrected. God, I pray that we would pray for those that at each and every day may live in injustice, Lord, that they are suffering from injustice. And God, that it wouldn't be that, that it may be, maybe some ways that we have been raised and some things that have happened in our life, Lord, has, has, has changed our sense of justice. But God, I pray that as believers this morning, that God, we would truly desire for people to have liberty, that they would have, for them to have justice, and God, that, that we would just live, uh, that we would live the kind of lives that, that, that gives that to all people. And so, Lord, we pray this morning, God, that you would uh, speak to our hearts, Lord. We're going to see some great and mighty and amazing things about you, Father. And I pray this morning that they would, that they would set us free, that we would understand the loving and gracious and merciful God that you are. God, we pray for those this morning that have come in with burdens, Lord. There's things that are heavy on their hearts, Father. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would speak to them in the midst of their storms, in the midst of the things that they are struggling with and suffering from. And God, I pray that they would know today the great healer and that we serve. For it's in Christ's name and for your glory, Lord, that we ask it all. Amen. As we kind of get, as we begin this morning, um, and we, we've been in this, the last, the, this kind of final portion of the book of Job the last couple weeks, we've seen that, that Job finally gets it, that he finally realizes that God's plan is profound, that his reasoning is right, and that his ways are higher than he could ever understand. And so Job surrenders, and we see that in, in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. And when, when God sees Job's repentant heart uh, and the deepest feelings of Job, heart, then God witnesses uh, the humility of Job's broken spirit and the openness and teachability of Job's soul, we find that mercy kicks in and justice begins to roll down. And I'll say this this morning, you will be amazed at how the Lord will use you in the lives of other people once you adjust your life to his ways. In fact, if you were with us here, uh, it's been a couple of years ago, but Henry Blackaby wrote one of the best Bible studies I've ever done, and it's called Experiencing God. And, one, and in that Bible study, he makes this statement. It's one of his main points. He says, God invites you to become involved with him in his work. That as a believer, as a child of God, as a Christian, every single one of us are invited to work side by side with God. That he has tasks for us to accomplish, that he has uh, uh, people for us to reach, that he has things that he desires for us to do. But he also makes this comment after he says that God invites you to become involved with him in his work. He says you must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what he is doing. 
And so when we make those major adjustments, it's amazing what God does in us and through us in the lives of other people. And I'll borrow from the words of Paul when Paul says, I am many things to many people. And we can become that too. We can become a reproof. We can become a refuge. We can become a point of hope. We can, be a, we can become a reason to go on or point to a reason to go on. That we can be a, strength, a source of strength in the lives of other people. We can be a calming influence. And we can be so much more. And it's awesome. It's an awesome experience when God God uses you as a way to restore those around you. And this often includes those who hurt you in their straying. Now, what we find in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, is Job's repentance. But in verse 7, God turns his attention to these three friends. Elihu is not included in this, and and I don't know why. We can speculate. Maybe he was right in a lot of what he said, and so he kind of of belongs in another category. But for whatever reason, Elihu, the fourth friend that burst on the scene late in the book of Job, he's not mentioned. So right now, just Zophar, Eliphaz, and Bildad. And Job, Job saw something when he repented. He realized that the lifestyle uh, that he'd been living uh, would not, uh, will not be the way you begin to live when you focus on the truth that life is all about your God. Now let me read that again. Job realized that the lifestyle that you live will not be the way you will begin to live when you focus on the truth that your life is all about God. Now let me put that in another frame of mind. When we realize that this life is not for us to live but, it, but when we receive Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, he is our Lord. So he makes, we say, Lord, you are in charge. You make the decisions. I'm going to follow where you lead. And he says, the life that I lived in the past is not the life that I begin to live when I receive Christ and, and start living for him. It doesn't continue on the same path. That there's a path and, it, and, and, and it, it's going to diverge at that point. We're going to continue living the way we want. We're going to allow God to have his way in our heart and life. And Job realized that. But Job's three friends failed to see that. You see, they're standing in the shadows, still frowning at Job, arms folded, scowls across their face, and they're wondering why lightning has not struck Job yet. See, they're waiting on this justice. They think they're right. They're waiting on God's justice to finally ring true, but they are in for a surprise. Let's look at verse 7 together. And the Lord had spoken these words to Job. The, and after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So when justice finally breaks, the first target are these three friends. And notice that God's wrath is kindled against them. God is angry. And I'll say this, there is a place for righteous indignation. Like there is a place for righteous anger in the world. Now, the Bible says, you know, don't be be angry and do not sin. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So don't stay angry and don't let your anger be a, a, like an impulse or a temper tantrum or a loss of self-control. 
But we see here that God's wrath was kindled against these three friends. And, 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 this, is, and this is why. He's saying that because you're not, uh, you, didn't, you didn't speak of me in the right way. He says you, that, that you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And so the, Lord, the Lord's words against these three friends, they're not a, a holy temper tantrum. They're not an overreaction as God throws a fit. Instead, this has been a long time coming. You see, God's been there and has heard every word. He's seen it all and he's listened to everything that's been said. And he's been standing back and he's been waiting for the right time. And finally, he reaches the time when he says, listen, my wrath is kindled. My anger has been stirred because you have not spoken to me what is right. In their effort to uphold God's justice, what they failed to remember and what they chose to ignore was God's mercy and they limited God's sovereignty. You see, their mentality was that you are suffering because you have sinned and that the only reason people suffer is because of their sin. And certainly, certainly, suffering can be a re- or, or sin can be a reason for our suffering, but it is not the only reason for our suffering. But these guys had put God in a box. They said, Job, the reason you're suffering is because you have sinned. And so, that, that, so God was, it was boxed in, and they lacked mercy in their words. Sinfulness is not, again, always a reason people suffer, but it is a reason they may suffer, but that's where they missed it. You know, they claimed that Job had, had committed some secret sin, and, and, and it just pressed in on that. And see, they, didn't, they did not represent God, God well. They said, you, he says, you have not spoken to me what is right. And for those of us that are Christians this morning... We need to hear that. We need to hear that. Because here's why. God cares very much how he is represented and that he is represented and presented in an accurate, fair, and appropriate manner. God cares very much how he is presented and represented. And you say, well, I don't really present him. I don't really represent him. You do because the Bible tells us that if you are a Christian, you are an ambassador, a representative of Jesus Christ. And so what we do and how we behave and and the words that come out of our mouth, all those represent the God that we profess to serve. And God cares very much about how he is represented, that we represent him with mercy and for the right reason, that we represent him in love. But God doesn't stop there. He doesn't just confront their wrongdoing. And this is so, I want you to listen to this because it's so, so very important. He doesn't just confront their wrongdoing. He does something about it. You see, in our minds, if if we're not careful, our faulty theology tells us that God is this mad or sad God and he just wants to point to what is wrong in our lives. But when God points to what's wrong in our lives or he points to our sin, it is for one reason. It is because he desires for us to be restored. That he wants us to be restored. It's not that he can stick his thumb in it and grind it and cause us intense pain. He says, listen, you're broken. Here's where you're broken. I want to fix it and I want to restore you. But if you can't acknowledge where you're broken, I can't fix it. So I'm going to point this out. I'm going to show you where you're broken so that I can make you well. And that's exactly what God is doing to these three friends. 
that, that, that he does something. He wants them to be restored, and restoration is always the goal following repentance. Mercy comes on the heels of justice. Look what God says in verse 8. So he says, I'm angry. In verse 7, he says, Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have spoken to me, uh, for not, you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. And so God's restoration plan involves sacrifice. Now what's interesting to me is here you have Job the offended receiving the offering, uh, the offering of those who offended him. Really, and if we were to break it down even further, God is really the one who's been grossly misrepresented and offended. So they're commanded, these three friends are commanded to, to make an offering, and then, and then God says, and my servant Job shall pray for you. Job will pray for them because Job's heart is right, the friends aren't, and he says, for I will accept their prayer. And here, to not deal with you according to your folly. What's, what's God saying there? He's saying, so that I won't deal with you according to what you deserve. What is that? That is mercy. You see, these three friends, man, they deserved anything God would have leveled against them. But he said, I don't desire for punishment. I don't desire to see you suffer. I desire to see you restored. And so this is what I want you to do. I want you to gather a sacrifice. I want you to offer that sacrifice. Then I want you to go to Job, and I want Job to pray for you because I'll hear his prayer and won't deal with you according to what you deserve. We've been waiting so long for Job to be dealt with correctly and justly, and now it's unfolding before our very eyes. The three friends who once considered themselves Job's judges are now gathering animals for, a, for an offering, bowing down before the Lord and waiting on Job to pray for them. And how healthy it was for these three friends to make things right, not only before God, but also before Job. You see, it's good for us to confess our wrongdoing to those who we have offended or hurt. You want to talk about representing God in a good way? When we do something wrong, we seek out repentance and we seek out forgiveness. But likewise, it's also right for us to say by our actions we have done what is wrong as we seek that forgiveness. That we don't come with a flippant attitude and say, well, forgive me, I've done something wrong. I mean, Ashley and I were having a conversation the other day and it, it surrounded, it went something like this, you know, an apology is not, I'm sorry you feel that way. That's not an apology. That just puts the blame right back on you. It's your fault you feel that way. I didn't do anything wrong. But to show, to show the appropriateness of our, in our actions, of what we've done wrong as we seek forgiveness. So these guys, they are you know, bowing down for the Lord. They're offering this sacrifice. And so Job obeys the Lord once these men had done what they had done. Look at verse 9. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the, the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. They didn't argue. They didn't delay. They didn't say, well, we feel like that's too great a cost. What's it say? And they did what the Lord had told them. I think ultimately they desired, they desired restoration. 
They had been shown where they were wrong. They wanted to be restored, and this was the path to it. So they did what God asked them to do, and they did it quickly. And so did Job. They do what they're supposed to do. Job did what he did, and graciously he prays for each one. Sins are forgiven in this moment. Don't miss the weightiness of this whole transaction between God, Job, and these three friends. Sins are forgiven. Guilt is being removed. Harsh feelings are being forgotten. Grudges are being erased. And that's exactly what happens when justice and mercy are blended together. Now, I want to I make a, a point here because I think you can't talk about what we've talked about here without talking about the foreshadowing of this. Because as I was sitting here reading, reading this about the sacrifice and the desire for restoration and the, and the desire for forgiveness, we can't help but to look forward to the New Testament and Jesus. You see, isn't, that, isn't this exactly what happens on the cross? Isn't this exactly why Jesus had to come? That justice and mercy are blended together at the cross. Sin had been committed by us. A sacrifice was offered by Jesus so that sins could be forgiven by God and harsh feelings forgotten and grudges erased. Flip with me, if you can, over to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you're not sure where that is at, you get to the New Testament, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. For some reason, I'm always drawn to this text because I, I just, it, to me, it, it's, it's just an amazing, it's almost, you could call it the gospel in a nutshell. But in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, this is what Paul writes. He says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead. There's no life in you. You were dead. And he says, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature, get this, children of wrath. So what's God saying? He's saying, because of your, you are dead in your sins and trespasses, and because of your sins and trespasses, you were children of wrath. You deserved, when God, when you think of God's justice, his justice declares that we are worthy of his wrath and punishment because of our sin. Well, that's not good news. Like, I don't like that. Well, look what he says in verse four. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised, us, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. That we were once children of wrath. That we deserved God's wrath. If you look back, our sense of justice screams loud and clear that Job's three friends were not friends at all and they deserved any kind of wrath that God brought down on them. And God, but God didn't bring down wrath. He made them aware of his sin, their sin 
and in a desire for in a, in a desire for relationship with them, he says, "This is what y'all need to do to be restored. You need to make go make a sacrifice. Then you need to go to Job and you'd ask Job to pray for him because y'all didn't talk about me in the right way, and I'm going to hear Job's prayer, and I'm not going to deal with you according to what you deserve." Folks, that's the Job chapter forty-two is the gospel. It is repentance. And it is the sacrifice that paves the way for forgiveness. We don't sacrifice cows and lambs and sheep and goats and birds anymore because we have Jesus who was the Lamb of God who once and for all paid the penalty for sin and death. Once and for all, he did it. He is our sacrifice. Why? So that we don't have to be children of wrath. Now, does the Bible talk about a lot about what our sins are? Yeah, and what is, the, what is the, the reason behind that? Why did God give us his word? So that, we're, so that we would see, let's, let's just call it, kind of borrow some Old Testament language, that the law was given to us that we would see where we're broken. In the Old Testament, the people were given the, the, the book of the law and all those rules and things they had to do and how to wash and what kind of sacrifice to make. Why? So that they would see how imperfect they were. The law was never a goal to attain. It was a a, a standard that was set to make us realize we could never reach that standard. We could never do what God is requiring us to do in the law. We can't do it. And why did he do that? Because in God's perfect plan, he said, listen, these people need to understand that they can't do it on their own, and I want them to look for something better. I want them to look for the way that's better, and that way is coming, and he's coming in Jesus. And Jesus says, I can bring a new covenant. That old one's gone. I'm bringing a new one, where it's not about the law. It's about my sacrifice. It's about my grace and my mercy, and I'm going to point to you where you are wrong in your trespasses and your sins, and I'm going to show you those things. But the whole reason for that is that you could be you could repent of those things that you could be forgiven of those things that you could be set free from the from the from from your sin and that you could be washed your stains though your sins may be as scarlet that you could be washed as white as snow that you could no longer be that old creation but you could be new and be given a new heart and a new life but if we can't acknowledge our brokenness we can't move forward in repentance and forgiveness And so, yeah, God spends a lot of time saying, don't do this or you should do that. Why? So that we recognize that as believers, there are things that we should be doing. And to not do them is a sin. There are things that we ought not be doing, and to do those is a sin. And God says, I want you to recognize that, but I want, and I want you to understand how broken you are, but I have come because where there is repentance and where there is justice, mercy flows right on its heels. And all of that flows through the cross of Calvary. All of it flows through the cross of Calvary. We, we, we know John 3.16 by heart, and we say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And verse 17 is just as crucial that God did not come into this world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. That men walked in darkness, and he came bringing a light that shone in the darkness, that men would see their sin. Why? So that they would turn from that sin because God has something better. And it always, 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 it does not start 
I'm going to say this, but I'm going to get you on a technicality here in just a second. It doesn't always start with just coming to church. Because just coming to church is never the answer. It doesn't start with just reading your Bible, because just reading your Bible is never the answer. The answer is always, and first and foremost, Jesus. It is Jesus, and Jesus uses the church, and Jesus will use the church to answer some of your questions. God will always use his word to help set us on the path we need to take. But if we take Jesus out of it, it's words on a page and it's a social gathering. Jesus is a part, is the, is the, is the pillar, the, the, the point to which all everything else flows. It is him. And if we don't have him, we can try to claim the things in the scriptures, but they don't apply to us because we have to have him. We have to have that relationship. And, and here's the beautiful thing about the book, this, this final chapter in the book of Job. Despite all that these guys had done, despite all the pain that they had, had, that he, they had caused to happen in Job's life because of all the hurt, that they deserved the, God's punishment, but he does not give it to them. Instead, he offers them restoration. And it's amazing because as you look at Job in all of this as well, as we look at Job and all of this as well, <laughs> Job is gracious enough to forgive them and to pray for them. What's, it, what's he say? What he say in, in the final part of, of verse, verse nine there? So Eliphaz, Eliphaz built Dad and Zophar, went and did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So Job. Pray, faithfully prays for them. Now, let's look at verse 10 here. I want to talk about it a whole lot this morning, but I, I just, you can't, you can't talk about God's justice without this part too. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. Do you catch that? Job did not pray for his friends after God had healed them, healed him. He didn't say, well, Lord, first restore my fortunes. First, restore my health, then I'll pray. Job, covered in boils, still bankrupt and broken, and still running a fever, and still in the ash heap, begins to pray for his friends. And says, and so, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, isn't that good? Because... Here's tangible proof that God is the best at justice. After all those hot, painful days and those long, restless nights and listening to all those condemning lectures and all the grief and all the confusion, all the misery and the waiting and after the loss of everything he knew and loved, finally, at long last, justice comes down and Job, broken in his own repentance, contrite of heart, praying on behalf of his friend, witnesses their being restored because of God's mercy. And at that moment, his eyes meet the Lord's and he hears something like, hey, Job, hey, Job, come over here for a minute, buddy. It's time for your reward. Your heart has been made right. Your actions have been pure. Your integrity has held fast. 
and everything now is good. It's time for your reward, and everything's going to be twice as good. And suddenly his boils are gone, leaving no scars. His fever breaks, and a cool breeze refreshes him. His friends are smiling and applauding, and he's able to return home. And the homestead he builds is twice as large as the other one. And on one morning, as he's up drinking his coffee, looking over his land, his wife comes in gingerly with a smile on her face and a giggle in her step. And she looks over to her, she leans up and hugs her husband, and she whispers in his ear, Job, I'm pregnant. And Job is blessed with seven more sons and three more daughters. And the Bible describes his daughters as being the fairest in all, in all the land. And Job, in his graciousness, blesses and leaves an inheritance for his daughters, just as the sons, which was not known that you did not do that in the time. It just was unheard of. Remember, Job didn't pray for himself to be healed and his fortunes restored. He prayed for those men who had wronged him. He had forgiven them. He had no knowledge of how the story would end. For all he knew at that moment, he was going to be afflicted with boils for the rest of his life. For all he knew, he'd never get back his lands or his home or have any more family. For all he knew, maybe the last words his wife ever spoke to him was way back there in chapter 2 when he said, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Now, all of a sudden, all this is being restored. The word of God spoken to him to pray for these friends, and Job obeyed. And you know, that's what God is pleased with. So honored by Job's quiet obedience and doing right. You want to know what else is awesome? Satan's silence. Satan's silence. He's not saying a word. He's witnessed the truth of what God told him way back in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Consider my servant Job. He has integrity. Though you may not kill him, you may touch him, and he's yours. Spare his life, but he'll never curse me. And Job is finally silenced. Let me leave you this morning with two truths. Number one is this. Forgiveness is worth asking for. Forgiveness is worth asking asking for. If there's something that's come between you and God, talk openly with him about it. He loves to hear the unguarded confessions of his children. He delights in our repentance. He will never, never, never turn us away. The Bible says if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just, there's that word again, just to do what? To forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you may be saying, well, you have no idea what I've done. Here's what I do know. Paul kind of talks about in Romans. He said, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. You know what that means in layman's terms? That basically means this. Your sin is never greater than God's grace. It doesn't matter what you've done. The reason it doesn't matter is because Jesus already died for on the cross. That penalty for that sin, that one that you think is unforgivable, that God could never forgive, it's already been paid for. When he died, done. The only thing waiting on, he's waiting on is for you to say, God, forgive me of that. Don't help me to not live under the weight of that sin any longer. Forgive me. And let's move on. God's or forgiveness is always, always, always worth asking for. And the second truth is this. God's justice is worth waiting for. 
Some of you may, have, may feel like you're in a situation where you've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for God's justice. Maybe you may think that God has forgotten about you. He has not forgot about you, but his timetable is not ours. The way we want him to work and the way he actually works are two completely different things. Sometimes he serves justice swiftly. Sometimes it takes time. But he will faithfully bring it to pass. God will make it right. God allowed what happened in Job's life, and now he's brought it to completion. Job's been rewarded. The friends have been brought to their knees and restored. Satan has been silenced and proven wrong, and God is fully glorified. And I don't know your situation. I don't know your suffering. I don't know who's wronged you or what has wronged you or what you've been wrestling with, but I do know this. I know that life on this earth is not easy. And I know that, that your tests may not have been as severe as Job's, but that does not make them any less difficult for us to endure. And you feel this morning maybe as just, that justice has been on hold. But listen, there is a reason for the delay. It might be to give you time to examine your own life. Maybe God, maybe you're like Job and God wants you to realize how big he is and how great his plan is and how profound his, his, his will is and, and that we're just never going to understand it. And so maybe he's waiting for you to examine and, and come in and say, you know, Lord, I, I need to repent of some stuff because I've had some pride. Or maybe that it's God's attempting to reveal himself to you in greater clarity. You know, sometimes we learn more about God in the storm than we do in the sunshine. And maybe this storm, this temporary trial that you may be enduring is that you can learn more about God and learn, learn about him in greater clarity. Or it could be that your willingness to forgive and move on is all that necessary to prompt the Lord to let his justice roll down. That you want justice to happen. You want forgiveness. You want peace. But maybe you're not willing to do as Job did and forgive the person who's wronged you. And maybe, maybe that's where we're at this morning. Whatever the need may be, let's stand together and let's pray as the musicians come and we have a, a quick, or a, well, a hymn of invitation. We're going to pray. And I don't know, I don't know what, what is going on in your life. But I do know this, God's word never returns void. And I know that some of you are dealing with some pretty weighty things. Maybe not on the scale that Job did, but that doesn't make them any, any easier to handle, that they're difficult. And so this morning as we pray, I would encourage you to, to just be in prayer as well. And if the Lord so moves on your heart, we invite you to come, to just come up here and altar. It's not, I'll say this before we pray. If you feel so led to come down on an altar, your walk is not a walk of shame. It's not. It never has been. Maybe you grew up in a church that the only time people went forward was to be saved. But in this church, we don't come forward just to be saved. If we have a need, we bring it to an altar. Why? Because we want others to be praying alongside us. We want that. We want someone to be praying alongside you, and we want you to know you're not alone in the struggle. And so as we pray, you pray with me, and...
as we close, we'll open up the altars for a time of response. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning.